Be good. Let's turn over to the book of Galatians again. I've been using the book of Galatians to just teach on some things. And, and remember, we started out talking about things that we do that limit God, that stop His power from operating. Or the scriptural terminology, Galatians 5, 4, is make Christ of none effect. And it's basically legalism, law, trying to be justified in the sight of God by what you do. Focusing on our effort instead of focusing on what Jesus did for us. And when you talk like this, people are immediately going to say, but you are supposed to do certain things. Certainly we are, but those things come as the byproduct of relationship with God, not the way to relationship with God. And some people think, well, it's the same thing. One way or the other, you still got to do what's right. It's huge, the difference. It's huge doing it as a result of God's love instead of trying to earn God's love. Well, that's powerful. You know, I wasn't in here for the afternoon messages, but I heard. I got a, one guy gave me a complete rundown of berries. I could nearly preach it. From, he, he was really impacted. He got it. And then Jim, they were talking about a father's blessing. And you know what? Most people just, they have never really accepted the love of God. They're trying to do something to earn God's love. And I tell you, that's frustrating. I, you know, in a sense, some of you may struggle to understand what I'm saying, but I just want to say this before we get into these scriptures. I was blessed in the sense that my dad died when I was 12 years old, just a couple of days after I turned 12. He was sick and in the hospital for months before I was 12. So when I was 11, my mother stayed with him in the hospital. He actually died the year that I was born and was raised from the dead. They covered him up and put him out in the hall. And he was raised from the dead. The group at the Baptist church were praying, and the pastor just finally said, well, either God heard our prayer and he's healed or he's not. I'm going home, going to bed. And he looked at his watch, and it was two-something in the morning. And at that exact time, my dad was laying out in the hallway on a, a hospital bed covered with a sheet they had pronounced him dead, and an orderly came to push him down to the morgue. And at that exact time, my dad kicked the sheet off and sat up, and this orderly wet his pants right there on the floor. He was raised from the dead, and he lived another 12 years, but he was sick and invalid. He never threw a baseball with me. He never did anything, and I never was upset. He was sick. Boy, it just gets me the way people say, well, my dad never did it. You know, you, there's a lot of things you can glean from this, but there are some of you that are upset because of the way your dad treated you, and he may not have done the right thing. Not everybody's a good dad, and I understand that. But you know, also, there's a lot of you that have taken an offense when none was intended. Some of your dads did the best that they could do, and some of them didn't have a good dad, and whatever reason, and you don't know all of the things that were going on. My dad never threw a ball with me. My dad never did anything because he was sick all of his life. My dad didn't, you know, my dad, the last words I ever remember my dad saying to me, we had some people come over to the house and um, I was hiding because I didn't want to, uh, I forget all of the details, but anyway, I was hiding in a closet and they were looking for me because I didn't want to see these people. I forget the reason. But anyway, I was sitting there and I remember my dad talking and he said, my brother Ray, he was complimenting him because he was bright. He had an IQ higher than Einstein's. 
He did all of these things. He was just Mr. Perfect. When my dad gave him a spanking, he would take it and never even let out a sound. And he said, but Andy, he said, he's just spoiled brat. He said, he's embarrassing. That's the last word my dad ever said to me. And you know what? Some people, oh man, that's terrible what your dad did. And you know what Jim taught? My dad didn't give me a blessing as such, but I never, ever was offended over that. I never got mad at it. It was true. Amen. It was the truth. And I was really blessed in a sense. Some of you may struggle with this, but I was really blessed that my dad died because when he did, I remember it just devastated me. And you know, we were singing tonight, um, How Great Thou Art. And my dad was the chairman of the deacons. And we had a little church of two or 300 people. And at my dad's funeral, they couldn't put all of the people in that church. It seated over 600 people. They had people standing outside. He was an awesome guy. And uh, people turned out. And I remember as a 12-year-old kid sitting there on the front row watching the casket. My, it was an open casket. You could see my dad in the casket. And his favorite song was, How Great Thou Art. And they got up and sang that song. How great thou art at his funeral. And I remember standing there watching this and thinking, God, this doesn't compute. How could you be a great God? And yet my dad died. And I spent six months praying that he'd live. And I fasted. I did everything I knew how to do. And my dad died. And I remember standing there thinking, if you're really great, then reveal yourself to me. I said, show me what you want to do with my life. He said, make my life count. And you know what? I believe that prayer as a 12-year-old boy set the course for my life. I believe God's answered that. And I was standing there tonight thinking about, man, how great you are, what God has done in my life. If somebody would have told me when I was 12 years old that you will see multiple people raised from the dead, your own son, you'll see miracles happen, people's lives changed. You will have a relationship with God that, man, you'll never be depressed. All of these things that God has done. God's been awesome. And the reason I say that that was a blessing is because when this happened, at 12 years old, I turned to God with my whole heart. I said, God, I need you. And you know what? The Lord revealed Himself to me, and I started serving God, and I have never gone away from it. There was a scripture that the Lord gave me in Psalms chapter 27. says, when your father or mother forsake you, the Lord will take him up. And my father didn't forsake me in the sense that he did something wrong, but he was gone. He wasn't there. And you know what? God took me up. God became my dad. And God became my best friend. And my mother, right before she died, 2009, she says, you know, you have never given me a problem. Which uh, I think that was probably a mother speaking through rose-colored glasses. I'm not saying that it was accurate, but you know what? I can say I never... Went through rebellion. I never did these things because I turned to the Lord. And even though some people today would feel this is justification for you becoming bitter and mad because God did this and took your dad away. And I was told that God's the one that killed my dad. Baptist pastor came over and says, God needed your dad in heaven more than you needed him. And they blamed God for doing this. I was told the wrong things. And yet I didn't take offense at it. My point is, you do not have to be offended. There are many of you that have carried hurt and you've been bitter. And again, I'm not saying that everybody's treated you right. But you know what? Many of you have been 
hurt. And you just can't blame your bitterness and your hurt on what other people have done to you. And some of you, it's been 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and you're still limping through life because of what people did to you. You just need to grow up, pull your thumb out of your mouth, and sooner or later say, you know what, they did the best that they could with what they knew, or maybe they were totally bad, but that's not, that doesn't affect you now. God's a good God. And God's supply is greater than whatever problem you've had. That's good preaching. There are some of you that honestly have been nurturing and nursing hurts and bitterness and amplifying. And then the more you think on it, the bigger it gets when you could be focused on what God's doing. You could be thinking about what the Lord has to say about you instead of what somebody else didn't do. Amen? That's all free. That wasn't part of what I was going to say, but that was good. So anyway, we were talking about how Paul, he wouldn't compromise on this gospel because it was this performance-based relationship that voids what Jesus does in your life. And so you've got to get back to where it's all about what God has done for you and not your performance, not the things that have happened to you. And so that's what he was talking about. He says, if anybody preaches another gospel unto you, let him be accursed. He talked about why he didn't circumcise Timothy because he used him as a proof that you could have a relationship with God and have the power and the fruit and the love and the joy and the peace of God flowing in you without conforming to all the religious uh, principles. And then he, uh, we talked about that in chapter 2. And then the last part of chapter 2, he's talking about that when he went to this Jerusalem council that was... Uh, recorded in Acts chapter 15, and they had this big debate about whether you could truly be a true follower of Jesus without being a Jew and without conforming to the Jewish rite of circumcision and the laws concerning the foods that you eat and the feast days and all of these kind of things. And finally, they concluded that none of those things were necessary and they uh, put a stamp of approval on Paul's ministry and said that, you know, he has been... This is God that's flowing through him. And they, they told the people that we embrace you as part of the body of Christ without you being circumcised, without you keeping the feast, without you going and doing all of the Jewish customs, etc. And this was a major shift in the, in the uh, body of Christ because prior to that time, they had been going primarily only to Jews and to open up the gospel to Gentiles that any person could have a relationship with God was radical and many of them wouldn't accept it. And let, this is just an aside. I'm not going to emphasize this too much. But today there are people really, really trying to go back to their Jewish roots and go back to the feast days and go back to all of the symbolism. And they are undoing everything that, man, God did to get us away from all of that stuff. We're being entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Some of you didn't care for that, but it's true. Now, there, there's benefit from learning some things. I'm not saying that we forget the roots and you go back and there's symbolism and stuff, but most of the Messianic Jewish stuff today is just legalism. It's bondage and it all goes back and they're saying that if you would do this and if you would do these things and go back and wear the shawl and if you would wear this and if you'll do this, God will love you more and you'll be closer to God. And they are basing your 
relationship with God on things that you do, external, outward things, instead of matters of the heart. And it's wrong. That's what Paul was persecuted over because he didn't preach circumcision and he didn't preach all of these religious rites. And it's amazing how many Christians, spirit-filled Christians, are going back into this stuff looking for some significance and deeper relationship with God through symbolism and through all of the things that God delivered us from. You're missing it. And this is what he talked about. He said that he, he communicated this privately when he was in Jerusalem because that was on their turf. You know, we have Happy Caldwell is one of the guest ministers that ministers in our school on a regular basis. And the first time he spoke here, I wasn't here, so I got the CDs and listened to it. And Happy was up teaching something that was contrary to what most people teach. And he wasn't sure how I felt about it. And so he got up and he said... He says, now I'm not sure what Andrew teaches about this. And he says, I'm secure in what I teach. But he says, I would never come into another man's field and plow crossways to what he's doing. And that was just his way of saying that, you know what, if what I'm saying doesn't line up with what Andrew, who it's my Bible school, he says, I, w- I want you to go with what Andrew says. He was honoring me and respecting me. Turns out what he was teaching is the exact same thing I was teaching. There wasn't a problem. But I'm saying I really respect that. And that's what Paul was doing. When he was on Peter's turf, he communicated privately to them and he held himself back and he honored these people and he didn't go in and just blast them in front of the people that were listening to them. But he says that when Peter came to Antioch on Paul's turf, he says, I rebuked him openly in front of all of the people because he was a hypocrite. He didn't use that word hypocrite, but he used the word dissembled in verse 13, which is hypocrisy. That Peter had had this vision where God gave him this vision and this sheet was let down and there was all kind of animals in there and Peter was hungry. He was waiting on people to fix the food and while he was waiting, he fell into this trance and he saw this vision, this sheet let down and had all kinds of animals in it and the Lord said, Arise, Peter. Kill and eat. He said, not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean in my life. Again, this was one of the Jewish laws that you couldn't eat pork. You couldn't eat any kind of seafood or or not all seafood, but uh, crustaceans and things like that. Lobster, uh, shrimp, any of those kind of things. There was all kinds of forbidden uh, food. And it was forbidden to eat these kind of things. There was drink uh, offerings and things. And anyway, he says, no, I won't eat this stuff. And God says, what I've cleansed, don't you call common or unclean. And this happened three different times. And while Peter thought on it, all of a sudden, here were the men from Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who was uh, sent to inquire for Peter. It's a long story you can read about in the 10th chapter. And anyway, Peter went with them and he started preaching the gospel because it was so supernatural how God brought all this to pass. And he just began to start proclaiming that Jesus had died for our sins. And while he spoke, they got born again and the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them and they started speaking in tongues and prophesying. Which Jesus said, the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. So if they were speaking in tongues and prophesying, that was God's stamp of approval, that they were born again, and yet they were Gentiles. And Paul referred to this and says, Peter, you knew this. You went. You saw this. You were the very first one that God revealed 
too, that you could have a relationship with God without keeping all of these religious things. And you knew it, and you went and preached the gospel, and you ate with these Gentiles, which according to the Jewish tradition was against their laws, and yet he ate with them and was fellowshipping with them. But when the church at Jerusalem heard about this, they sent some people to uh, find out what had happened, and when the Jews came... Peter separated himself and wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He separated and ate over at a separate place with the Jews. And he went back to observing the religious traditions because he was afraid of the uh, religious leaders of the Christian church. And Paul didn't say anything about that when he was in Jerusalem. But when he came to Antioch, Paul rebuked him openly and he says, You're a hypocrite. You knew better. And yet you wouldn't, you wouldn't preach the truth because you were afraid of what people had to say. Man, that's a powerful word. There is so much that we can learn from this. You know, I apply this in my life. When I go to another person's church, I may not agree with them, but man, I'm not going to sit there and try and destroy another person's church. I'll never minister anything that tries to undercut that person. But you come on my turf... And you go to preaching something that I don't like. And again, I'm not going to nitpick over everything. But I mean, if it's something that's anti-gospel, I guarantee you I'll deal with that in a heartbeat. Yes, sir. Yes. God's given me a responsibility. And I'm responsible for what goes on and what's done. And, and I have a responsibility. And I have to follow through. There's a lot of things to learn from this. But anyway, Paul goes on. He just keeps talking about this. And um, let me start here and read. He told Peter... He says, if you have been liberated so that you don't feel obligated to all of the Jewish rituals and laws, then why do you take Gentiles and try and convert them to keeping the laws that you don't keep? He says it's hypocritical. And then he said this in uh, Galatians chapter 2 in verse 15. It says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go on and read some of these verses, but boy, this is important that you get this. The Amplified, the NIV, a number of translations will put this as faith in Christ, but that is not what this says. It says it three different times in a couple of verses here. It's we are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. Huge difference. Now, it is true that we put faith in Jesus. I'm not saying that we don't have faith in Jesus, but these verses are saying you are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that saved you. Jesus believed for you. Jesus died and made an atonement for your sins, and He's done all of these things for you, and it is His faith that saved you. When you get born again, did you know that we're so destitute that we can't even believe on our own. Human faith. There is a human faith. People will say it's faith to sit in this chair. They'll take a stool or something like this and say, how do you know that this stool can hold you up? Well, you've seen it hold up Dave Hinton, and if it'll hold up Dave Hinton, it'll hold me up. Amen. you got some faith. You got some facts, some things to base it on. But the faith of God, it says in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, that God's kind of faith calls those things that be not as though they are. 
He didn't have something to make the world and the universe out of. He created it from no physical thing. He spoke it into existence. He said, let there be light, and light came. And it was the fourth day of creation before he created the sun for the light to shine from. Amen. This is not the way we think. We would have created the sun, and then we would have said, let there be light. God created light, and then said, let there be a sun and moon. God calls those things that be not as though they are. God's kind of faith is not based on physical, natural things that you can see. And so when you got born again, you had to believe in a God whom you could not see. You had to believe that there was a heaven to gain and a hell to lose. And you had to believe in things that you couldn't see. Human faith can only believe for things that are physical, tangible, something that has proof. If I said, come sit in this chair... And I'm pointing right here. And you can't see anything. Those of you that only have human faith, you wouldn't do it. You'd say, I can't see it. Or what if you saw a chair that only had three legs instead of four and the thing was falling over and you could see that it was coming unglued. You wouldn't sit in something that didn't convince you or tell you that it could support your way. And yet, when it comes to believing on Jesus, you have to believe in things that you can't see. Where did you get that faith from? It's not your faith. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. God's Word contains His faith. And when you hear it, faith comes. You know, we've been preaching God's Word. All of these ministers that have spoken have been preaching God's Word and speaking God's Word. And you may not realize it, but we've been releasing the faith of God. Faith has been coming out of our mouth. And if you will open up your heart and receive it, faith can come straight into you through the words that you're hearing. And it's not human faith. It is God's supernatural faith. The type of faith that created the world. It's the kind of faith that can raise the dead. That can see blind eyes open. Man, this atmosphere has been permeated with faith and with all of the things that we've been doing. So my point is, you are so destitute... We were so dead in sin that not only could we not save ourselves, but when Jesus died and made the atonement for our sin and made the provision, we couldn't even believe it and receive it. It was too big to believe, and God had to let us use His faith to get born again. He literally imparts His faith to you and lets you use His faith to get born again. And this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. You could say that that salvation is not of yourselves, and that's a true statement, but it's also true to say that that faith that you put in God's grace wasn't of yourselves. It was a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God literally gave you His faith. And as a Christian, boy, this I've got an hour and a half teaching on something I'm just going to say here, and I'm going to have to let it go, but you ought to get hold of this. That the faith you are using is not just faith, human faith, your faith in Christ. See, that kind of logic has led some people to say, Oh yeah, I believe that you've seen miracles and that you've done this, but you just have more faith than I do. No, I didn't have any more faith than you do. I did until I got born again and then God gave me His faith. And it says in Romans chapter 12 verse 3, the very end of that verse says that we are supposed to think soberly, that means correctly, according as God hath dealt to every man the 
measure of faith, not a measure of faith. Some of you don't have a little bit of faith, and some of you have a lot of faith. And yet Christians all the time are praying, Oh God, just give me more faith. Oh God, increase my faith. You've got the faith of Jesus. One measure. You know, if we were serving soup or something, and if everybody was walking by here, and if I was the one that was dishing it out, and if I had one ladle, I had the ladle, then all of you would get the measure. But if I used a big old ladle for some of you, and with some of you I'd use a teaspoon, another one a tablespoon, another one an eyedropper, another one I'd put a toothpick in there and put one drop in your bowl. Well, then there would be different measures, and some of you would get more than others. But if there's only one measure, well, then when you came through, you'd all get the measure. It says that we are supposed to think according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, I'm aware that the nearly inspired version says a measure, but you ought to get you a full Bible. I'm not against that. If it's what you want to use, use it. But there's, I can show you at least a dozen places that the NIV doesn't even put the verses in there. They just leave them out. Like Matthew chapter 17, verse 21, and other places. They just didn't even think that verse was good enough to put in the Bible. You ought to get you a real Bible. One that has all of the verses in there and the one that says the measure of faith instead of a measure of faith. It's important. That you, when you were born again, you were given God's supernatural faith. It is not your faith. It was the gift of God. Every one of you have the exact same measure. Now, you may not be using it because faith is based on knowledge. And if you don't know it, and if you bought into what's been taught and just, oh God, I just need more faith, and you're going around begging God to give you what He's already given you, well, then you aren't going to see it operate. But the truth is, every one of you in here have raising from the dead power. You have the same faith that Jesus used when He did miracles. You've already got that faith on the inside of you. And the first step is learning what you've got and then figuring out the laws that govern it. Faith is governed by laws. And if you learn the laws, it's like electricity. You plug something in and it just works. You don't have to be good or holy. It's not based on how much you've been praying. There are laws that govern electricity. You could be holy and pray and fast, and if you don't plug the thing into the wall, the juice won't flow. And there's so many people that are praying and begging and they're fasting and they're doing all these things and being as holy as they know, but they don't know what the laws are. They don't believe what the Word says, and it's not going to work until you believe, first of all, that you've got it, and then learn how do you use it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You've got to start using the words to release faith instead of speak your fear and do different things. Anyway, that's a whole other teaching. But all of that goes back to this verse, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, by what you do, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus believed for you to be saved. Jesus gave you His faith. You are justified by Jesus' faith, not by just your faith in Him, but by His faith in you. Paul said that God counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Man, that is awesome. God has faith in you. God believes in you. He gave you His faith. That is awesome.
There are some of you that nobody's ever believed in you. But you know what? Jesus has believed in you. And it's that very fact that He's given you so much that keeps you from walking in victory. And you're thinking, how's that? Because it's at your disposal. It's under your authority. He gave it to you. And if you don't realize what you've got and start standing up and acting like a man and using what God gave you, then you can beg and plead and do everything you want and God can't do anything more than what He's done. He's given you everything it takes for you to be successful. 2, Timothy, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, According as His divine power hath given unto us everything that pertains unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that has called you to glory and virtue. God has already put everything that you need on the inside of you. You have the faith of the Son of God. And the only reason it's not working better is because we don't have the right knowledge. What you don't know is killing you. We have these stickers that ignorance is bliss. That's not true. What you don't know is killing you. And that's the reason Bible college, and it doesn't have to be done in Bible college. It's just the fact that the Bible college is one of the few things in the body of Christ that we use to just really make disciples. This should be the mission of all churches is to make disciples, but instead it's not with a lot of people. And so we have Bible college, and man, this is where people are getting knowledge, and we just see people's lives transformed. They already have this power on the inside of them, but they don't know the knowledge to know how to use it. They don't know how to plug it in. They don't know how to switch it on. But they've got the goods. God's already done it. You are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. Not by faith in Christ, but by the faith of Christ. And not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Again, some of you think, well, I'm not under the law. Anything that you think you have to do to be accepted in the eyes of God is a work of the law. And it doesn't matter if it's some Jewish religious tradition. It could be that you've got to go to church, that you've got to pay your tithes, that you've got to pray an hour a day. You've got to read the Bible so many hours. You can't lose your temper. You've got to do this. You've got to do this and this. Any of those things are works of the law. Anything that in your mind you are doing it to get something from God is a work of the law. True faith is just putting faith in Jesus has already done it, and I receive it by grace. And now there's things that you do, not in order to make yourself acceptable to God, but I need to believe. And Father, I know that faith comes by hearing. I've been believing the wrong thing. I've got to get my mind renewed. So you get into the Word not to impress God or to earn God's favor. You get into the Word to renew your mind so that you can believe correctly. You go to church because you aren't going to hear the things that I'm saying watching As the Stomach Turns on television or watching whatever. You're going to have to go around believers. You're going to have to go to places where people are speaking the Word. God loves you if you never go to church again. If you don't go to church, He still loves you the same. You're just stupid. But God loves you, stupid. But you won't love Him the same if you don't go to church, if you don't get around God's people. If you don't study the Word, God will love you the same, but you won't love Him the same. If you don't do what's right, God will love you the same, but you won't love Him the same. Boy, these are powerful truths. 
And anyway, let me jump down to verse 20. He says, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not by faith in the Son of God, but I am living by the faith of the Son of God. Romans 12, 3, there's only one measure. Everybody got the measure. Paul said his measure was the faith of the Son of God. If that's the measure that Paul had and there's only one measure, then guess what? You and I have the faith of the Son of God. And if it's not your faith, if it's His faith, then it'll do anything that He did with it. You don't have a faith deficiency. you got a knowledge deficiency. We are thinking that I've got to have more faith. You know, I heard Reinhard Bonnke interviewed on the 700 Club one time, and he was talking about all of the miracles and how that when he preaches overseas, he says he seldom ever finishes a message because people just start getting healed. Miracles happen. Blind eyes open. The lame walk, and he just has to start accommodating and give an invitation, and people get born again. And he was talking about all of this, and then they opened it up for questions. And one of the audience says, Why do you think that more miracles happen over in third world countries than happen here? Is it because they have more faith? And see, I knew the things I'm talking about here, and so, boy, my ears perked up. I wanted to hear Reinhard Bonnke's explanation. And Reinhard Bonnke says, You Americans are the only place I have ever been on the face of the earth that people have this concept of more faith, little faith, big faith. He says, you just believe. You either believe or you don't believe. He says, what's the deal about you got to have this big faith? Boy, I love that. Jesus said, a little mustard seed amount of faith is enough to see a mountain uprooted and cast into the sea without ever touching it. You just speak to it. Man, that seems like it's impossible. Pike's Peak out here, can you just speak to it and see the thing literally depart? Don't do it because I live on the edge of Pike's Peak. (laughs) But could we do stuff like that? And it only takes a little mustard seed amount of faith. If, If a little tiny bit of faith would do that, how much faith do you have to have to get your hangnail healed? To get over your cold, to see blind eyes open. You don't need this big faith. You've already got the faith of the Son of God. But we got stinking thinking, and our thinking is stopping the power of God from flowing because we think we got to do more and get more faith, and we got to do this to earn God's faith. When you got born again, you were given the measure of faith. You got all the faith that you need. It's what you have right here between your ears that's the problem. We got to renew our mind. You get transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you prove the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And then he says in the next verse, I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. If you are seeking to be justified by the law, if you are seeking to earn God's favor, if you think that God won't heal me until I pray more, until I fast more, until God won't move in my life until I do more, then for you, Christ is dead in vain. Or you can go back to 
Galatians 5, 4, Christ has become of none effect because you aren't walking by grace anymore. You're operating under law. And by our little tests that we took, this is where a lot of people are, in varying degrees of not having God's sacrifice be effective in your life because we've gone back to trusting in ourselves and thinking we've got to earn the grace of God and do all of these things. Man, those are powerful statements. It's just like making it Christ's death is in vain for a lot of Christians. Maybe they got born again, and if they die, they'll go to heaven instead of going to hell. But as far as this life goes, as far as experiencing the abundance that Jesus wants you to have, many people can't experience it because they are under this deception of thinking, I've got to do something to earn it, to activate it, to get God to move. Amen. Y'all are looking at me like, who would dare believe that? Most of the people in this room. You know, I've had prayer lines by the thousands. And I've heard this hundreds or thousands of times. People come up and say, why won't God heal me? I fast, I pray, I study the word, I pay my tithes, I go to church, I'm doing everything I know. Why hasn't God healed me? You just told me. You did not point to what Jesus did for you You've been pointing to what you have been doing for Jesus. I'm fasting. What does God want? He wants you to receive it by grace and put faith in what Jesus did instead of trusting in your goodness. Amen. That's profound. That's powerful. And yet immediately when you say something like that, people say, well, then what about the law? And what about all of these things where God said, if you do this, I'll do that. You know, I could give you a long, long explanation of this, but we'd be here until tomorrow morning. (laughs) You may be all right, but I'm ready to go to bed here in just a little bit. I've got teaching over there. You know, uh, the true nature of God would be a great teaching to go along with this. It would really explain uh, some things that would be good. But in a nutshell, he begins to deal with this in the third chapter. And, uh, you know, I'm just not making a lot of progress. I doubt if I'll get all the way through this, but let me just summarize that the third chapter basically talks about why the law was given. The law wasn't given to, to give you a way to earn the things of God. Here, you'll have to stay with me just a second on this, but if you could follow this logic, it'll really help you. And this summarizes, this is an oversimplification, but in a nutshell. The reason God gave the law was for people who were trying so hard to be good. And they compared themselves with other people. And because they didn't commit the sins that this person did, they were feeling pretty good about themselves. I may not be perfect, but at least I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. I'm better than this publican over here. And so they were into self-righteousness and trying to save themselves and trying to be good enough. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees did. And so for people like that who were under the deception that they could become good enough that God owed them salvation, God says, you think you're good enough? All right. Do this. Do this. Do this. And if you want my justice, if you want me to move in your life, if you want my power, you've got to do this, this, and this, and this, and this. And what he did was raise the bar so high that nobody could clear it. Nobody could live up to it. 
And the law wasn't given for you to keep. The law was given to show you how incapable of keeping the law you were so that you would quit trying to earn salvation and instead it would drive you to your knees and make you think, Oh God, if this is your standard of holiness, have mercy on me, a sinner. That was the purpose of the law, was to condemn you, to beat you down, to make sin come alive and overcome you. Those are all quotations of scriptures. And yet the most religious people, that's not true. It is true. And the law was only temporary. And that's what this third chapter of Galatians says. It was only temporary. It was given until the seed. Christ should come. And now that Christ has come, you aren't under the law. And this whole concept of do this in order to get this has now been eradicated. It never was really intended to purchase relationship with God, but rather to show you how incapable of ever living up to it you were. You know, here's an example that my... Son, when, he, when uh, they were real little, I was teaching them how to work on, uh, some, uh, on my car and do some things. I mean, when they were real little. And uh, one time I was working on a bike. And my son, Peter, he's just always had a, an aptitude for physical, natural things like a mechanic. And he was only like four years old or something. And I was taking off the back wheel of a 20-speed, or I forgot, maybe it wasn't 20-speed back then. But anyway, one of these multiple speed bikes, the, the back sprocket, you know, it had different things on it, and it was a little complicated. Anyway, I took that uh, wheel off, and I fixed it, and he watched me, and then he wanted to put it back on. And I was telling him and trying to give him instructions how to do it, and he says, no, I can do it. Let me do it. I can do it. I don't need your help. I can do everything, you know, and I kept telling him that you got to do it right, or you're going to have to redo it. It won't work. And anyway, he just... He thought he could do it all on his own. So I said, okay, do it. I gave him an impossible task at four years old, knowing that he was going to fail because he needed to realize that he needed to learn some things and he needed to follow instructions. And so I let him do it. And I said, all right, put it back on. And I told him to do all of these things. And of course, he couldn't do it right. And I knew he couldn't do it right, but he didn't know he couldn't do it right. And I had to give him the opportunity to say to show him, all right, it won't work. And finally, when it messed up, I said, now here's the way you did it. And I used that to teach him. In a sense, that's what the law was. We were thinking, oh God, I know I'm awesome. I know you're going to accept me. If you accept anybody, you're going to have to accept me. I'm pretty good. God thinks you're pretty good. All right, here's my law. Do them. Step one through 10,000. Do them all. You can read in Leviticus chapter 20 through 22 where it talks about the priest, which we are all now kings and priests. Did you know a priest could not be left-handed? A priest couldn't have a mole anywhere on your body. You couldn't have a flat nose. You couldn't be stoop-shouldered. Your posture had to be perfect. You couldn't have any blemish. You couldn't have a broken bone. Is there anybody I hadn't hit something yet? Why did God give those laws? Is it because He hates you if you have a mole on your body? No, He was willing to accept us as we were. But if you want to think that you're good enough, that you can qualify and you don't need Jesus as your high priest, if you want to step into that position, 
All right, here's what it takes. You got a mole? Disqualified. Left-handed? Disqualified. Flat nose? Disqualified. Stoop-shouldered? Bad eyesight? If you can't see perfect, you can't be a priest? On and on and on. Why did God give those laws? So you could go burn the moles off? No, so that you'd quit trying to place yourself as the Savior and do these things and just humble yourself and say, Oh, God, I can't measure up to this. And he says, Bingo, amen. Receive it as a gift. It's like the guy who went to heaven and the angel met him and says, All right, we're going to give you a test to see if you qualify. And I'm going to give you points on how you answer these things. And the guy said, okay, I've been a really good Christian. I go to church all the time. Shoot. So the angel says, have you been faithful to your wife? And he says, always. I've never cheated, never lusted or anything. The angel says, well, you've got to have 100 points to get in. And he says, no problem. So he says, I've been faithful to my wife. And the angel says, fine, that's one point. He <laughs> One point. <laughs> he says, did you, ever, did you tithe? Oh, yes, I was a faithful tither. That's worth half a point. <laughs> did you do, and, you know, after all these questions, he had about five or six points. <laughs> and he says, my God, if this is what you're demanding, I, I, it's, I won't get in but by the grace of God. And the angel goes, bingo, come right in, amen. <laughs> that was the purpose of the law. It was to show you how messed up you were so that you'd quit trying to earn the faith of God and instead you'd receive it by grace. And religion has turned it around to where, no, God said that you've got to, you can't have a mole. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. And they, they're selective. They selected. They don't, they, most of you haven't heard those restrictions about being left-handed, stoop-shouldered. They conveniently leave that out. And they just pick and choose certain things that they think you can do. But one of the points that he makes right here in, Gen in Galatians chapter 3, those of you that desire to be under the law, don't you hear what the law says? The law says, Cursed is everyone that continues not in everything that is written in the law. It's not you make the best grade you can and God will give you grace for the rest. It's not that anybody who makes a B or above gets accepted, you either make 100 or if you make 99.9, .9, you fail. And he's bringing this point out. This is pretty awesome. Anyway, there's no way for me to preach all of this stuff, but let's work on it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? It takes demonic deception to turn away from such good news that God loves us independent of our performance. Why would anybody do that? It's a demonic deception. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? Of course, Jesus was not physically crucified among them, but what Paul is referring to, he preached the death the crucifixion of Jesus, and Jesus paid for our sins, and Jesus purchased everything for us. It was so real what he preached. It was as if these Galatians had seen Jesus crucified. It was so real to them. Most of us have not seen Jesus that way. We believe Jesus paid a portion of the price, but not all of it. 
We think that we still have something to pay and we have to suffer when we sin and when we come short. And it's that thinking that is making Christ of none effect in our lives. And if you could understand that Jesus has already paid everything for you and there's nothing left to pay, I guarantee you, it would transform your life. In verse 2 he says, This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Of course, the answer to that is none of us received the Holy Spirit because we were so holy and we deserved it. We received it because of faith. We just heard the good news and we received it. I tell people all of the time when I'm praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit, I said, people will teach that if you have any sin in your life, God won't fill a dirty vessel. And I'll tell them God had not got any other kind of vessel to fill. And if you've got a sin in your life, that makes you a prime candidate for the Holy Spirit. If you could get holy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. Man, if you've got a problem, you need the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't come because you deserved it. It was a gift. And Paul's referring to that. When you received the Holy Spirit, was it because you'd been doing all of these things? Back when Paul preached to them, Paul led them into salvation and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit right back to back. It didn't take 10 years in between. And so these people had been pagans before. They didn't have five years worth of church attendance and tithing records and things to offer God to make them holy enough. They came to the Lord and received salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a free gift. They hadn't been fasting and praying and going to church and paying their tithes. They didn't deserve it. And they received these great gifts of salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit absolutely free. And he says, are you so foolish... Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? If you receive salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a free gift, what makes you think that now you've got to change and start earning all of these things? Some of you came to the Lord and you were living in adultery. You were shacking up with people. Some of you were dope addicts. Some of you were drunks. Some of you had done who knows what else. And you received Jesus as your Savior and got born again and got your life changed with no goodness to your credit at all. We sang the song, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. And you came and received the greatest gift that a person can possibly receive, and that is the forgiveness of your sins with no goodness, no credit to your account. You received it as a gift. Then Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Are you... Uh, It says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. How did you receive it? Did you earn it? Did you come and say, God, I'm holy and I believe you need to save me? No, you came and humbled yourself and received it as a gift. Romans 6, uh, 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift. You can't pay for a gift. So you receive the greatest gift that you could ever get, salvation as a gift, free of charge, and yet now we're so foolish thinking that I got saved by grace, but now I have to earn it to get healed, to be blessed, to have joy. God didn't change. We changed. We quit believing in what He did, and we started believing in what we've done. You know, if a person came for salvation tonight... And if I had a word of knowledge, and if you truly understood the gospel that Jesus came and commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, and He died for us, He gave Himself for sinners, He justifies the ungodly. If you truly understood salvation, and if you came, and if I had a word of knowledge and said, God shows me you're living in adultery. 
That wouldn't keep you from getting saved. That would drive you even more to say, that's the reason I need salvation. Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sins. It wouldn't keep you from receiving if you understood grace. But, get born again. And then come up here and say, man, I'm praying for my headache to be gone. And I say, God shows me that you haven't been studying the Word the way that you should. That you got angry at your wife before you came here. And most Christians would just totally care. Oh, now I understand why God won't move in my life because I haven't been doing everything. And until we go back and balance the ledger and start living holier, we can't believe that God is truly going to move in my life and set me free. Can you see the difference? You receive forgiveness of sins while you're an adulterer, while you're a liar, a thief, a dopehead, whatever. And yet you can't receive the slightest little healing because you're condemned over the fact I didn't study the Word. I got mad. I lost my temper. I didn't do this. God hadn't changed. The power of God hasn't changed. It's that we quit believing in grace. Our faith is in ourselves instead of faith in a Savior. This is what he's saying right here. In verse 4, he says, Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, that's a great truth. Some of you don't understand. You aren't in ministry, but I can guarantee you any person who's been in ministry a long period of time, you aren't going to be holy and doing everything right every time you minister. There's going to be times that you get up and you know what? You just flat have been carnal. You were watching the playoffs and you weren't seeking God. You don't deserve God to use you. You got mad at your wife. You, you made fun of somebody. You said something you did. You know, you are going to mess up. And any person who is a good minister has to learn that, God, you aren't going to use me because I deserve to be used. Man, it's by your grace. And the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. And even though I'm not the person that I should be, I'm going to stand here and not, I'm not going to tell them about who I am. I'm going to tell them about how awesome you are. And I'm going to tell them about you. And I expect people to be healed and set free and saved because you are a good Savior, not because I'm a good person. Any person who has ministered has to sooner or later learn that it's not because of you, not because you deserve it. It's the grace of God. And so this is, the people that minister to you, are they doing it? Is God using them? Is the anointing on their life because they deserve it? Certainly not. It's in spite of who they are. God has never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. None of us deserve the presence and the power of God operating in our life. And so it says in the next verse, even as Abraham, and it starts using Abraham as an example. Abraham, you know, uh, uh, Arthur mentioned this this morning. I mentioned Abraham made some serious mistakes. Abraham wasn't a perfect person, but he believed God, Genesis 15, 6, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was imputed unto him. It was just like he was holy and sinless, not because he lived that way, but because he believed God in faith is counted unto you for righteousness. You have faith righteousness, not works righteousness. Boy, that's big. He uses Abraham as an example. And then in verse 7, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith are the children of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Again, there were laws about the Jews and circumcision, and, and there was things that made their national identity different from everybody else. But the Lord, in the very beginning, says, In you shall all nations be blessed. He preached the gospel and showed him that there was coming a time that people would no longer relate to God based on what their nationality was and whether they followed these customs and rules, but instead it would be based on faith in Him. And Abraham is the father of many nations. Abraham's my father, even though I have no Jewish blood flowing in me because I am of faith. It was his faith that was counted unto him for righteousness. And it says in verse uh, 9, it says, So then they which be of faith are blessed with Abraham, faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse... For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Did you know most people who are living under this law mentality and feel like that they've got to earn the blessings of God, they don't know enough about the law to actually understand what they're doing. Paul said this over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, those that desire to be under the law don't understand what they say nor whereof they affirm. People are saying, you've got to be holy. They don't know what they're saying because by saying that, they're condemning themselves. They'll say, well, I'm not perfect, but... Well, the Bible says, James chapter 2, verse 10, and it said over here in Deuteronomy 27, 26, it's a lot of different places. It says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of everything. I have never done some of the quote-unquote sins that people talk about that many, many of you in here have done things that I've never, ever, ever done. I've never been there. And yet you know what? I'm as guilty as any person in here of sinning and breaking the law of God. And many people think, no, that's not so. That's because you don't understand that God's law isn't 10,000 different commandments. They all make one commandment. And if you miss one point, if you are wearing a garment that is part polyester and part cotton, you broke the law. It's true. Even if you've never done all of these things, it doesn't make you better because every one of us in here have broken the law of God. And it's like a huge old piece of glass. If you had it here in front of me, you could shoot a little BB through it and make a small hole, or you could drive a truck through it and crack the whole thing. It doesn't matter. If you break the slightest thing, then the whole thing is broken. Even though if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. I am guilty of murder, adultery, homosexuality, lying, stealing. Even though I hadn't done those things. I'm guilty of it because I have broken the law of God. I haven't loved God the way that I should with all my heart and soul. I haven't honored my parents the way that I should. I've, I've been selfish. I've exalted myself. I've done things that broke the law and I am guilty of anything that any person in here is. Not by man's standards. Men will look at me and think you're better than somebody else. But who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Not me. 
All sin comes short of the glory of God. I needed a Savior. Amen. There isn't a hell number two or a hell number three. I was headed to hell just the same as anybody else who's done all of these bad things. Man, this is amazing what he's saying here. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. And that, that scripture in Proverbs 27 26 says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Those who are saying that you've got to be holy. If you really were to live by what you were saying, you're destroying yourself by saying that. You cannot be holy. Well, I can't be perfect, but... Well, then you start having degrading on a curve and you have to start saying, well, it's not 100%, it's 90% or 80%. The moment you open up that door, Satan has you. Because you might be holier than I am, but you will not, never make 100. You will never do everything perfect. The motives of your heart will be wrong. And Jesus came to say that even if you don't ever commit adultery, if you lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Even if you never steal, if you covet, you're guilty of stealing. Even though you may never murder a person, if you're angry at them without a cause, you're guilty of murder. Man, when you take into account what Jesus said, there is not a way that a single person could ever justify and stand before God and receive things based on your own goodness. Those of you who are saying, but I believe you've got to be holy, you're destroying yourself by that thinking. You can't do that. You will be condemned. Man, these are strong statements. You know, legalist, Galatians is not their favorite book. I just don't know how people can read this and persist. It doesn't make sense. And so you don't hear a lot of preaching by people who are preaching the law out of the book of Galatians. It says in verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 says that. And the law is not of faith. <laughs> That's one strong statement. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, I believe it is, says, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The law is not of faith. The law itself is not sin. It was perfect. It was a perfect standard. But trying to earn relationship with God by the law, by fulfilling some standard to make yourself worthy, is sin. It's the sin of self-righteousness. And that sin is worse than murder, worse than homosexuality. Homosexuality pales in comparison to a person who says, Jesus isn't enough. I might need a little bit of help from Jesus, but I can handle it on my own and I'll just trust Him to make up the difference. That's Antichrist. And that's what religion is just full of. Man, I'm saying things that it's so hard for people to grab hold of. You know, let me just use one example. Intercession, the way that it's taught today is people have to intercede, and if it wasn't for their intercession, calling God down and repent and turn from your wrath and don't destroy this nation, they are interceding and, and turning God from His wrath. And they use examples like Abraham, 
where he literally told God, you aren't this kind of a God. You can't do this. If there was 45 righteous people, wouldn't you repent? And he, he comes down. And then uh, Moses told God in Exodus chapter 32, he says, repent of your fierce wrath and turn from your wrath. A man told God to repent, that he was unjust in what he was thinking on doing. Exodus chapter 32, you can read it. And the amazing thing is, in Exodus 32, I think it's verse 14, it says, God repented. And people will cite things like that, where they turn God from their wrath and they pled with Him. And that's the way that New Testament intercessors minister. But look over here. I believe it's in 2 Timothy. It's either 1 or 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, I have a 50-50 chance of getting this right, but it seems like I miss it every time. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It, matter of fact, over here in Galatians chapter 3, where we are, it says that the um, first covenant of the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. That's the last part of verse 19. It calls Moses a mediator. A mediator is a person who stands in between two opposing parties and tries to reconcile them and stop the strife and come to a peaceful conclusion. Moses was a mediator standing in between God and man and telling God to repent. And it was appropriate for Moses because Jesus hadn't come yet. There hadn't been a payment for our sins. And so Moses was not wrong to do that. Abraham wasn't wrong to intercede and beg God to turn from his wrath. But in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's only one intercessor. There's only one mediator, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And if you try and intercede the way that Moses interceded, the way that Abraham interceded, then you are against Christ. You are taking a position that now Jesus occupies. He forever reconciled man to God. And there is now no longer any war between God and man. He placed all of His wrath upon Jesus. He's not mad anymore. He's not in the process of judging America for our sins. He's already judged Jesus for America's sins. And God is not going to destroy this nation. This nation can destroy itself, but God won't destroy us. And for a person to intercede the way it's being taught in the body of Christ today, where, oh God, please turn from your wrath and don't pour out your wrath, you are taking a position that only Jesus is supposed to occupy. And so here's a strong statement. It'll shock you, but you need to be shocked. You'll remember this. If you're interceding that way, you're anti-Christ. You are against what Christ is doing. Strong statements. You've made Christ of no effect. You've made His death in vain. He didn't do it. Now you've got to do it for Him. His blood wasn't enough, so you got to sweat blood. you got to suffer. you got to toil. you got to travail. you got to go in and lay hold of God. And if He won't answer your prayers, well, then call the prayer chain and put more pressure on Him by having a hundred people get on His case. 
And maybe if a hundred people won't do it, let's get a thousand people or a hundred thousand people praying for revival and not let go until God does something. Stinks. It's a totally ungodly attitude. That's the way it was done in the Old Testament. There's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I know that some of this is pretty strong, but we need to be strong. The law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You know, this is so obvious. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It is so obvious. How do people miss this? Well, they come along and they say, well, when you're talking about law, there were two segments to the law. There was the ceremonial law, which were the feast days and the rituals and wearing a garment that's only one type of cloth and having a fringe around the bottom and wearing the phylacteries. And that's the ceremonial law. We've been redeemed from that. But we still got the Ten Commandments. Well, here's another verse that would go right along with that. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, look at this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, who also, verse 6, "...who hath also made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious..." What do you think that's talking about? It has to be the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law wasn't written in stones. It was the Ten Commandments that was written and engraven in stones. And that was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. It's not just the ceremonial law. It is the law written and engraven in stones has been fulfilled. Now let me give a little P.S. here because I know some of you think, oh, you're against the Ten Commandments. I'm against you preaching that you have to do these things to be pleasing to God. I've had people get really mad at me and say, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. I'll say, tell me what they are. Name them. <laughs> and these people who will sit there and fight you to the death over the Ten Commandments can't even tell you what they are. Oh, but I believe we got to keep them. I can prove to you that the Sabbath has been fulfilled. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it was a type and a shadow that has now been fulfilled. And Hebrews chapter 4 says that it's a relationship with God. If you are sitting there trying to observe a day and not work and not do certain things on a day, you are a Sabbath breaker. The Sabbath isn't these things. In the Old Testament, it was a, it was a picture and it, it had a place and it was enforced. And you can read about it in things like Isaiah chapter 58. But in the New Testament, it's a relation. The Sabbath was a picture of a relationship where you're resting in God and trusting Him and not working yourself, not being legalistic, but you're receiving things by grace. The Old Testament was a picture of grace. And if you as a New Testament saint are trying to keep a certain day and think that by doing so you are pleasing God, you are a Sabbath breaker. You're breaking the New Testament Sabbath because you are trusting in your own effort and in some observance instead of trusting in Jesus. Amen.
Man, I'm bound to have stirred up some things here tonight. And yet I'm using a scripture to verify all of these things. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says that these were shadows of things to come, but the very body is of Christ. You know, if you could imagine that this pulpit is a, a building, a big tall building, and if you were around on that side, and if I'm here, and if you couldn't see me, well then my shadow would give you a lot of information about me. It would let you know whether I'm standing still, whether I'm heading towards you around the corner, whether I'm going away from you, whether I'm jumping up and down, if I've got a big club in my hand. You could tell all kinds of things about me by the shadow. And if you can't see me, well then the shadow would be really informational and you could learn something by it. But if I come around the building and now you, I'm in full sight and you could see me, something would be wrong with you if you fell down and shook hands with my shadow and started talking to my shadow and hugged my shadow. If you can't see me, a shadow's beneficial. But when I'm here, why would you have fellowship with my shadow? The Sabbath was a shadow is what Colossians 2.17 says. You can even read that in the NIV and it says it. It was a shadow. But now we've got the reality of Jesus. Why are you still observing the shadow and thinking, oh, I worked on Sunday and I, I, I just pray that the devil doesn't destroy me because I deserve it. I broke the law and, and I just don't have any faith that I'm going to make it. You're a legalist. Christ has become of none effect unto you because you're trusting in your own goodness. Amen. And I'm going to have to shut up for tonight. But you read the rest of Ephesians chapter 3. I probably won't start there tomorrow or I'll never get out of Ephesians 3. I mean, Galatians 3. So go read it tonight and, re- and you'll find out that, well, if all of this be true, well, then why was the law given? It was given to shut you up <laughs> unto faith. It was given to hem you up so that... Every time you thought, well, man, I I can overcome this. I'm really holy. Well, here's the law giving you another commandment and another condemnation. And so you you couldn't win. So you say, well, I'll go this direction. And the law put a wall there. And I'll go this direction. And here's a wall. And it just hemmed you up so that, oh, God, I can't go anywhere. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That was the purpose of it. It was a schoolmaster to bring you unto Christ. But now that you've come unto Christ and now that you have faith, you are not under the schoolmasters, what Galatians chapter 3 says. You aren't under the law. You should not be constantly evaluating, have I done everything? Have I fasted enough? Have I prayed enough? Am I worthy? Will God move in my life now? If that's the way you're thinking, you make Christ of none effect. It's just like His death is in vain for you. Man, we need to get back to walking in the grace of God. And the same way that you receive salvation is a gift. You didn't deserve it. You just received it. That's the way you need to receive your healing. That's the way you need to receive your joy. That's that's the way that you need to receive the pleasure in feeling that God is pleased with you. Not tight to your performance, but tight to the fact that Jesus purchased it. He gave you His faith. He gave you His righteousness. God is as pleased with you as He's pleased with His Son, Jesus. And I know I'm saying things that just make your head tilt, like, no, this can't be. I know it's different. I am not ignorant of the fact that what I'm saying is different than what most of you hear. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. 
What I'm saying is, I've been quoting scripture to you. I've used a lot of scripture here tonight. And if you've been listening, you may still have a lot of questions. And I still got a lot of answers, but I just ran out of time. But that's why, praise God, we make all of these materials available. Everything I know is on uh, CD or on DVD, amen, or on the Internet. You can get it. You know, if any of you don't have the money to go over there and get some things, did you know you can get, I think it's three or 400 of my teachings absolutely free off the Internet? Man, it's awesome. You can get nearly anything I know off the Internet free of charge. I've got a commentary with 15,000 footnotes that you can look up and you can see what those scriptures, what I have to say about those scriptures. There's no reason for you not to be able to get this. You can get anything I've got free of charge. And so I know you may have more questions, but I just run out of time tonight. But praise God, you put all of these things together, you ought to be experiencing a love and a freedom from God, a freedom from condemnation. That many of you have just accepted that this is the way it has to be. It doesn't have to be that way. You, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You do not have to feel inferior. And if you ever open up and receive this love that we've been talking about, what Arthur was talking about, the friend of God, if you ever open up and receive this, it'll so transform your life. Nobody has ever loved you like Jesus loves you. Nobody has ever accepted you. Nobody has ever been as good to you as Jesus has. And I guarantee you, you'll throw away anything for this relationship. You'll give up anything that you've got to be able to learn more about this God who loves you so much. And you'll do anything for Him. And so this really answers the question about, well, then can I just go live in sin? No, because you love God so much, you don't want to live in sin. Sin isn't as good as God is. There is nothing that sin can do. There's no buzz that sin can give you that God can't do a thousand times better. And if you truly receive this love of God, you'll, have, you'll lose your desire to live in sin. Because living for God is so much better. Amen? I'm praying that you guys will go back home so full of the love of God, how much God loves you, that you, it will just, your wife's going to say, what happened to you? There are many of you that the reason you haven't been able to love your wife is because you can't give away what you don't have. And there are some of you that have never received an unconditional love. Everybody's always been conditional with their love and you have been trying to perform and because of it, you don't have a heart of love. You feel rejection, you feel condemnation, and you wind up giving what you feel. You can't give away what you don't have. And so you need a revelation of how much God loves you. And if you ever receive this and really get bathed in God's kind of love, you'll go home and you'll love your mate like you've never loved them before. You'll love them with a God's kind of love that's not tied to their performance and whether they do everything right. But you'll love them because God told you to love them, because God put His love in you, and you'll love them unconditionally, even when they don't deserve it. I've counseled thousands and thousands and thousands of marriages, and people come and basically, they may say it in different terms, but they'll tell me what this person has done, and they don't deserve this. 
And that's what causes problems in marriage. You're giving each other what you deserve. And your mate doesn't deserve everything. And you don't deserve it. You know, I love Jamie and I try and take care of her, but I don't deserve Jamie to stay with me. I put Jamie through some bad stuff. I've been through some hard things. Did you know if Jamie gave me what I deserve, she'd divorce me. I don't deserve her. Man, praise God that she's got the love of God in her and she loves me unconditionally and she treats me nice when I don't deserve to be treated nice. And I do the same thing to her. This is the only way that marriages will ever work. If you're giving your mate what they deserve, you might as well get your divorce papers ready. Because you don't, they don't deserve you to love them. But you know what? You didn't deserve God to love you. And if you ever receive that unconditional love of God, and if it be, you live in it, then it'll be easy for you to turn around and give somebody love when they don't deserve it. But there are some of you feeling justified in doing what you've done. You may be justified, and you're going to destroy your marriage with it. But if you'd love them as Christ loved the church then you could see that marriage heal. Some of you need to go back and humble yourself and just give an unconditional love. And you think, well, I'd be losing all of my advantage. I've saved up and I've got a list of everything they've done. Man, that's wrong. Praise God that God doesn't keep a list. It says in Psalms 103, He took my sins and threw them into a sea of forgetfulness. They were removed as far as the east is from the west. Have you done that with your mate? Or every time you get into a disagreement, do you bring up things that happened 20 years ago? That's not love. That's judgment. That's condemnation. And many of you, that's the way you give because that's all you know. You need to, first of all, let God love you unconditionally before you can turn around and give unconditional love. And there's a lot of you that have never received this love. Praise God. I'm not through. I'm just going to quit. I'll quit and we'll start again tomorrow. But you, you can't ever get through talking about this. This is what changed my life. I experienced God's love. I didn't understand anything I've told you tonight. I was raised under a conditional type of stuff, but I just experienced God's unconditional love for me. And it revolutionized my life. It, forever, it turned my theology on its ear. It started me seeking God because I just knew that God loved me and I knew it had zero to do with me deserving it. He revealed how much He loved me at the same time He revealed to me that I was a religious Pharisee and a hypocrite and I didn't deserve a thing. And it came, they came simultaneously and I knew that that love wasn't tied to any goodness of mine. It was God loved me because He was loved, not because I was lovely. That changed my life. And there's some of you that need to receive that revelation here this weekend. That's what God's been doing. I feel like there's been a powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit and God speaking to some of you guys and things are happening that you can't even explain. You may not figure this out for 10 or 20 years. But God's just touching you and performance-based things and condemnation and things are falling off of you. Boy, it's powerful. I believe there's a powerful work of the Holy Spirit going on in people's lives. Father, right now, I pray for my brothers and I pray for... 
whatever it is, I know that the love of God is the answer to our fear, to our condemnation, to our performance-based things, the anger that's on the inside of people, temper. I believe that the love of God would just literally snuff out the fuse on that temper. Father, that your love is the antidote for our insecurities and everything else. And Father, I just believe that your Holy Spirit right now is flowing and touching people's lives and that the Holy Spirit is making specific application of these truths to every single man's life in here. That everyone is having you go to the root of the problem. That, Father, we are receiving a revelation of unconditional love completely separate from what we deserve. Father, I thank you that the guilt, the condemnation, the religion, the bondage that we have been raised under... We just use these words to set them free. I believe that they know the truth and that the truth they know sets them free. Thank you for freedom coming to people. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we receive this. Thank you, Father. You know, like I said at the very beginning tonight, there are some of you that have been hurt by your father, mother, parents, other people. And you've been nurturing this hurt for decades. And you're letting things that happened to you 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago still hurt you today. Man, we need to get over that. What Jesus provided for you is greater than any problem that any other person has ever given you. And you need to quit magnifying the hurt that's been done to you and instead magnify the love that God has. That it's... God's love is like a tsunami. It's like a, it's just huge. It's infinitely bigger than what your problem is. And if you would open up your heart and receive it, it would wash away all of this hurt and pain. There's some of you that need to right now just bury this, this rebellion and hurt and pain that you've been carrying around and let the love of Jesus set you free and then extend that same unconditional love and forgiveness to other people. Man, that's awesome. You know, everybody to some degree can receive this because all of us have been hurt. But I believe that there's some people in here tonight that, I mean, you have, the Holy Spirit has really touched you and you know that you are being delivered and set free and that the work of God is doing a powerful work on the inside of you. If that's you and you just know that the love of God is setting you free from hurts and bitterness and you're ready to forgive and let people go and you're going to bury it and that's not going to be an excuse for you to limp through life. If you know that that's the Holy Spirit ministering to you, I just want you to stand where you are as an act of faith and I'm going to continue to pray and I believe God's going to do a miracle by you just standing and saying, that's me, I'm receiving this. Again, everybody could receive it to a degree, but I want those that feel like you're receiving a major thing from the Lord. God is touching you and you're being delivered and set free in this area. I want you to stand and we're going to pray and I believe God's going to do a miracle in you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, for all these guys who are standing, thank you for revealing these things to us. Father, according to James chapter 1, we receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. Father, we let this word sink down on the inside of us and deliver us from this anger, from this unforgiveness, for a rebellion, for an attitude. 
Father, thank you for delivering us from the chains of these personalities that we've forged through hurt and pain and anger. Thank you, Father, for just setting us free. That we don't have to be this hardened person anymore. That we can be free. That, Father, we can turn around and love our mate and love our children as Christ loved the church. We don't have to wait until they repent and until they become worthy that we could love them unconditionally as you've loved us. Father, I thank you for a miracle happening in these men right now that they're going to go home and be able to humble themselves and not be worried about what their mate or their children think about them because they'll be secure in you. And Father, they have your love so real in their life that they aren't afraid of somebody else and how they'll respond. Thank you for delivering us. I believe that right now demonic strongholds that have been in your lives for decades are being broken. That right now it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Some of you have strongholds in your life of hurt and pain, bitterness and unforgiveness and criticism and other things. Right now, these strongholds are being broken. You're being delivered. There are demonic things being broken off of you right now. You're being set free from things that have held you up forever. It's broken. I command these demonic things to flee right now. Addictions, bondages, We break these things now. And Father, we let the love of God come in and just force all of this stuff out of our life. Father, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. Father, I thank you that the Holy Spirit is just revealing this unconditional love to us. And that, Father, we are finally being accepted, settling in and resting in who you are and what you've given us free. Father, we thank you for that. We agree. And I just thank you that these men are being set free. Father, we've stood to receive, and I believe that you have released this anointing in our life and that we are free from this moment on, and we refuse to allow this stuff back in. Father, thank you for keeping us in mind of this. Thank you for the Holy Spirit bringing back to our remembrance what you've spoken to us this weekend. Thank you, Father. We believe that we aren't going back the same way that we came. Father, thank you that our mate, our children, our friends, people that we work with are going to see a person full of the love of God, a person who will humble himself and put other people ahead of themselves. Thank you, Jesus, for doing a miracle in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. We agree and we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all agree with that? Awesome. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I tell you what, that's awesome. I tell you what, we've already given an invitation for things, but uh, if there's anybody here that hasn't received, I'd like to ask some of our Bible college students to come down here in the front, and we will be here. If you just want someone to pray with you and agree, if you need a healing, or it doesn't have to be physical, it could be financial, it could be emotional, it could be some of the things we've already prayed about, and if you just want someone to agree with you, 
Let's have some of our Bible college students come down here and they will be here to pray with you. Remember that we have our break room open. You can go up down there and visit. I think there's some refreshments. We've got breakfast in the morning from 7 till 8. Is that correct? And we start at 8.30 in the morning. And tomorrow morning will be our final session. So make sure you come back. And remember, we give away these gifts. If you aren't here when it starts, you could miss. Amen. So come back. God bless you. Good night. You are blessed.